and we are back. Little hiatus. Because of a little a little monster, a little miracle. More a like little, a, a big miracle. A big miracle. The miracle of life. We are. We uh, The took... Circle of Life, Lion King. No. That's just... Are you excited to see the new movie? Or do you want to see the no, new I movie? No, I want to talk about the baby. Okay, that's good. She's cute. We took a little hiatus of uh, a week and a half off. Because <laughs> I don't want to talk about Lion King right now. Um, because little Harvey June made her arrival on July 13th. So we're sitting here recording this podcast with an extra special guest. We actually have a guest on this podcast, our first one. She's sitting here. Hopefully she doesn't make too many awkward comments or noises. She's not meant to really contribute uh, to this episode, but you never know. So there may be a Besides few... Besides with her loving spirit. Yes. There may be a few baby squeaks and, and um, cute noises as she snoozes in Patrick's lap during this whole episode. But we're stoked to be back. Life in Commune. Episode... Who knows? Episode, it's the, the we're back. We're back. The we're back episode. Um, and while many of you may be interested in Carling's pregnancy story, that or not birth story, excuse me, we talked a bit about pregnancy mm-hmm. last week, um, that will come out on Monday. We're actually going to do a full special on the one and only Carling Harps. Yes, so we'll and, dive into that at a later date with more detail, um, especially if that's something that you're interested in. I will talk all about the birth story, how that went down, and how Lil Harvey June made her arrival. Um, but for this week, let's just suffice to say she's here. She's here, and she is happy and healthy, and we are happy to have her. Mm-hmm. But what no. are we talking about today? So our topic for this week is, can you talk about something if you haven't lived it? Or, as it relates to teaching yoga, can you teach something if you can't do it? And one of the reasons this came up for us this week is, I'm back teaching classes at our studio commune in um, Wallingford neighborhood of Seattle, of course. And everyone in the studio obviously knows that Carling was pregnant. Carling is now given birth and we now have a baby and people ask me about it constantly which is amazing it's nice to, that people are interested in um, how Carling is doing and how the baby is doing uh, and people always want to know about the birth and stuff like that and I kind of have to give like a really brief rundown of it and it's funny because I did not give birth you did not <laughs> I was only there I was a witness to You're the a experience spectator sport <laughs> yeah I was totally a spectator I was a fan I was cheering yeah, you on yeah I mean, you were an involved fan a cheerleader if you will yeah you know integral part of the game integral part of the game of course <laughs> that's an inside joke between us um due to carling's cheer past but uh the constant argument of is cheerleading a sport or not which is not something we need to talk about today in here but um one of the interesting things about all that is i find myself not sure how to answer their questions and not because you're not doing well but because how am i to say what that experience was truly like for you. You know, I can only speak on like what it's like for me when I play my role of like carrying the baby, soothing the baby. But you're, I, I was telling somebody the other day that really right now I'm just like, I'm Scotty Pippen. Like I'm like really good. I'm holding it down. I'm repping for the team. But when it comes to clutch time with the babe, Michael Jordan, a.k.a. Carling, has to step up in the pocket and make those game-winning shots, you know, because you are the food source. It's true. There are There is just a job that only one of us can do at this moment, and yeah. that, is, uh, that, Feed. is, that is feeding and nourishing this babe. Um, it's very true. It is interesting to be in that role, because I feel like most of my life I've been more of the Scottie Pippen player. <laughs> like, in general, I've likened myself to Scottie more often than Michael, so it is funny to be like, oh, all right pass her over because there's just only one solution to yeah to every two like, hours. like at some point every trick i have for soothing it just goes away 
because it's nothing like a boob. There's nothing like it's nothing that like boob. a boob a to fr- solve fresh, a problem. A fresh nipple. There's nothing like that to solve a problem. It is true, and it's interesting to think about because I haven't been around the studio, or I haven't. You know, I've been really holed up, just recovering and trying to soak in this sort of Taking season it easy, of life, which is amazing. Yeah, and you know, we've just been napping and hanging and feeding and napping and hanging and feeding. Um, but because I haven't interacted with anyone really aside from social media and our immediate family and very close friends. So I haven't really had to tell anyone how I'm doing or how it's going. Cause I've just been kind of soaking it up for myself and you've been kind of taking the lead on interacting with all the rest of our community. Totally. And again, it's, it's really fun and it's, um, it's cool to see how interested people are in, in the experience and people are excited to meet the baby whenever that opportunity comes to reality. But again, I can't speak on the birth mm-hmm. or how it was for you because, you know, it, it wasn't me that did it and I or that went through it. You know, I was obviously just there. And I think that also taps into teaching, teaching yoga, right? So when one of the most common things that you hear about is can you teach something if you can't do it? And how do you want to set that up? How do you want to feel? What do you feel about that on a, like on a surface level? Well, Before we I, dive into it. I just think that it is such a common question that comes up, especially if you're a newer teacher or a teacher in general in a place where asana is the heavy focus, if that's what it is in your community, that oftentimes we fall into this trap of wondering whether we're worthy of teaching something if we can't do it ourselves. And I think it's a question that teachers ask themselves. And I think it truly is a question that students wonder as well, too, that if, if someone can do something, does that mean that they can teach me? And I think it can be confusing on both ends of the spectrum to wonder what exactly constitutes a good teacher and also what is really necessary to teach. And also someone's knowledge of the concept versus embodiment or capability to perform the concept. Because I think those two things are also dramatically different, right? So like you can understand something conceptually and the pieces that it requires to make something happen. You could also just naturally have that movement in your body, or you could have both. I think the big question is, what do we mean by, can you do it? Does it mean, can I never teach handstand until I can do a freestanding handstand? Does it mean I shouldn't teach Urdhvadanyarasana or a wheel pose unless I have a superb wheel pose? Is that what we mean? Do we mean performance? Do we mean mastery? Um, Or do we mean embodiment? And I think that for me, the kind of chief thing that really matters as teachers is that you're able to provide uh, reflection upon the experience of embodiment. It means that it's something that you have worked through in your body, doesn't mean you've mastered or can perform it, but it's something that you have experience of. It's something that you have at least played into in your own reality. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think there has to be some level of first-hand experience, mm-hmm. but I don't think it needs to be a complete like you said, mastery of the capability. Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the things that gets really confusing, especially in this world of movement, in this world of yoga, is for some reason, I don't know why this is, people forget about genetics. Yeah, no one wants to really admit that genetics are a big part of everything. A big part of this. And I think that that your natural predisposition is your strength, Mm -hmm. no matter what that is. Yes. Because that's the line that you can play, mm-hmm. right? That's something that, that you inherently know if you actually reflect upon yourself and begin to learn it. Um, but I think that so often people, especially in the yoga world, they get caught up in 
that teacher can do that thing. They must be able to teach me how to do that thing. Mm -hmm. And some people, many people can't. Absolutely. But there's also just this inherent capability of like, oh, you're just very naturally flexible or your body naturally moves that way or you naturally balance easy. Like Mm -hmm. I think some one of the things that's so funny, especially with handstand, is that people don't realize that balance is a skill in of itself. Oh, yeah, the act of balance and cultivating that. Like some people have amazing balance and some people struggle with balance. Well, and just your general level of proprioception and all those things. Standing on two feet, Mm -hmm. standing on, you know what I mean? Just just, coordination levels. Coordination levels, yeah. Like these are all parts of the process Mm -hmm. uh, and it's easy to only look at the finish line and not look at the course well and as a teacher it is it is natural to wonder if someone will take you seriously teaching something that you can't do I remember being a young teacher and being a little nervous to practice in classes with fellow students at the studio because I didn't want them to see that oh I can't do this or I can't do that because I didn't want them to like not take me seriously as a teacher or think that I wasn't good enough to be teaching them things that was an insecurity that I had but realizing that oftentimes what makes a good teacher is not the ability to perform a skill or mastery over something but it's the dedication and experience of studying it and more than even the ability to perform it at all is the ability to communicate it. So without the ability to communicate what you're trying to teach people and the charisma to motivate them and get them interested, what you can do is really irrelevant. Completely, especially on your last points, the ability to communicate and the ability to motivate, Mm -hmm. right? So I think the foundation for any of these teaching concepts, right, is the ability to academically set it up properly. Like I think that's phase one. Mm-hmm. So whenever you're thinking about a pose, let's like let's say we're talking about Urbhadanyarasana. You love backbends, but you don't have a strong backbend practice, mm-hmm. okay? But it's something that you're working on. You're embodying it, and so you want to offer that more in your classes. What would be your phase one? Because my phase one would be, okay, academically, I need to comprehend what type of preparation is needed for students to walk this path. Mm-hmm. What am I asking of students? Yeah. And honestly, sometimes when you can't perform something naturally, you have a way better sense of what the average student is going to require along that path than someone who can naturally do something. Yeah. Right? If you've been doing dropbacks since you were four and never thought twice about it, at the end of the day, you this is not a knock on anyone who's been doing them since they were four, but you may not be the most effective at communicating what it takes to get there because you've just been doing it for so long. Yeah, it's almost... If you've been doing something for such a young at such a young age, it's almost part of your natural predispos- mm-hmm. natural predisposition, not even your trained self. So we always believe that there's this balance between your natural self and your trained self. I'm sure we've talked about this more in a podcast prior to this one, but uh, essentially, your natural self is just like your your tendencies, right? The things you would do inherently. Things that just are second nature to you. And a lot of that stuff comes from the stuff you did very early on. Mm-hmm. So, again, if you did a lot of drop backs, um, handstand style gymnastics. work, gymnastic style work when you're a kid, like even before your consciousness is developing, you're not necessarily really trained in that. It's just kind of part of your subconscious. Mm-hmm. Again, not knocking it at all, just you know, being honest about it. And then there's your trained self. Like once you've developed your consciousness, you've developed certain ways in which you live your life, certain habits in which you have certain movements, certain everything, right? And those are those are your, you know, the training that's allowed you to participate in the world in one specific way or another and maneuver around the planet, right? And so you're always playing your balance of your natural self and your trained self. And 
um, especially if you're into, you know, while we don't believe yoga is inherently an athletic discipline, anybody that is dedicated to movement, um, we call this adult athletics and Mm -hmm. adult athletics is essentially grown in popularity quite a bit. And I think it's an amazing thing because the more we move our bodies, the healthier we are as people, Mm -hmm. um, and a population. But if you're just getting into a lot of this more unique movement based stuff, um, at an older age, all of this is trained. Like you'll yeah. have some natural things like, oh, naturally you may be a little bit more flexible than another than one person or another, depending on what you did when you were younger. Or maybe you did a lot of weightlifting, so like the pushing part of the mm-hmm. practice is more accessible to you. But for the most part, a lot of the movements are trained. And I think that um, let's actually explore. I think this will actually be good for people. Let's actually explore uh, so if you are coming back to the order of Adhanirasana, the wheel pose concept, if you are somebody that loves backbends, you're working on them, your practice, but it's not natural for you. What are, what would be the academic, actual academic steps to setting that up in a sequence? Are you asking me? Yes, I am. Oh, it's like, I'm, I'm putting you on the I'm spot like, right now. Like literally what are the mechanics? Yeah. yeah so it? like, what would be some oh, of the sure, mechanics sure, sure. you would focus right, on? Right. So yeah, I mean, literally if you're, if, especially if this is how your brain works teaching wise, mm-hmm. I mean, you could take this in many directions in terms of energetically, what yeah. do we need? But physically, just, what do we need? Yeah. Right. We need to start mobilizing the spine mm-hmm. and that doesn't just mean an extension, right? When it yes. comes to backbends, it's, I believe that it's best to mobilize the spine in many different directions. So that means flexion, extension, lateral twisting, right? So we want to start to find movement there because we're all going to move a little bit differently. And so warming up through there, um, we need extension through the hips, Mm -hmm. right? We need activation through the posterior chain. So we need to learn how to extend the hips, use strength of the glutes, um, the whole back chain of the body. We need to figure out how to get the arms overhead, right? We need to open up through the lats and the triceps. So there's a lot of mechanical aspects that and need to be... you get that all done in one hour. In a 60-minute class. Do your best. Right? Maybe some pranayama <laughs> and a nice long shavasana and, you know, knock it out. Hour of power. Super accessible. Again, you guys, a little bit of a joke on the end of that. As you can tell, for one, Kong's taught a lot of yoga and she's taught... <laughs> um, and with that... You, you inherently know naturally a lot of these concepts mm-hmm. that that would make backbending easier and more accessible. Mm-hmm. So if you begin to incorporate even some of these concepts into your practice, all of a sudden you're actually preparing the body more and more for mm-hmm. backbending. And the interesting thing is you'll most likely be biased based on the preps that you need yep so make sure that you're being balanced in your thought process well and this is where that concept of embodiment comes in because Mm -hmm. if i've never practiced your asana but academically i know that i can go down this checklist of i need to prepare x y and z then certainly you could sequence a class and prepare the body in that way but when you have live a lived experience of practicing this posture it leads to more experience knowing that, okay, for my body, it takes a little bit more X, Y, and Z. That might work for this percentage of my practitioners. Probably not gonna work for all of them, right? But you wouldn't have that insight if you hadn't experienced it in your own body. Otherwise, you're just going through that checklist and maybe that works for everyone, maybe it doesn't. But it's harder to discern, I think, when you don't have a sense of experience in your own body around it. And this is where that experience really comes into play. While you may not be able to fully embody a perfect, quote-unquote, order of non-yurasana in your own body, if you know the general steps it takes to prepare the body for that position, all of a sudden you can teach the pose Mm -hmm. without having to be able to demonstrate the pose. Yes. Because 
everything that you've built up throughout the course of the practice mm -hmm. allows students to have their own experience with the posture, which at least in my opinion is the most important part of teaching anyways. I'm not trying to tell people how the pose should feel for them. I'm trying to allow them the opportunity to have their own experience through what we've done during the course of the practice. Yeah, and you're providing guidance based on your own firsthand experience, which I think is almost always more compelling than running through a laundry list of we need to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Or in yoga, typically X amount of cues and X amount of postures that are the recipe for something else. Because there's many ways to prepare for things. And there's even that laundry list of anatomical preparations that we just mentioned. There's a ton of different ways you could hit all of those markers but when we only look at it from purely an academic point and not an experiential point we tend to just go through the same checklist over and over instead of experimenting and finding those novel movements and ways that might work for some students or other students knowing that everyone's a little bit different and again playing into your awareness of your bias and also the population of students that you're teaching mm -hmm. so for example for you in your practice what would be three of the poses that you would want to practice before doing Urdhvadhanirasana? Well, I think number one, I mean, this is a pose that I think we should all practice almost every day anyways, but locust. Locust pose. Locust Shalabhasana is absolutely, even though it is not a quote-unquote big back bend and it's different in that it's prone instead mm -hmm. of supine, right? You're on your belly instead of on your back. But the importance of something like locust is all of that strength along the spinal column and the back line of the body. Um, it's teaching us how to activate and move from a negative. All these things that are really important so we can build that stability and strength. Um, any postures where I can get arms overhead. So anything like where you're cradling the back of your head so we can get length through the lats and the triceps and start to find that overhead shape with the arms because that's also something that many students struggle with right mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time at desks or computers things like that so getting the arms in that position just that that preparation for urvadhanirasana i think can go a long ways to getting people to start to experience the posture without them needing to master or accomplish the posture right because for many people just getting their arms overhead and palms flat on the ground to start that pose is a big deal and it's tough it's really tough yeah and again, what's interesting with this, you guys, is while I'm 100% on board with Carling, with Locust Pose being, again, in my opinion, and I've said this many times, arguably the most important yoga pose mm -hmm. for a normal practitioner mm -hmm. because it gets you so much strength through the back line of the body, which we all desperately need and lack, that would not be in my prep list for me for Orvidhanirasana, mm -hmm. right? For I know me, what would be in your list. Which is? Hip flexors. Hip flexor, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hips, moving my hips into extension mm -hmm. and um, forearm balance hollow back. Right. Oh. So those would be like, which I would not have not exactly have thought of. right. I mean, I'd certainly dolphin would be in there for yeah. me, but 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 see, because again, you Carling need to rein in more, yes. quote unquote, like like you're looking for more control in your spine. Mm -hmm. I don't know about now. <laughs> oh, not right now. I haven't, I haven't done anything in extension for a, a long in, time. In your, in your normal practice, you're always working to create more control because of the phase of your practice with backbending the next phase is adding in more strength and stability mm -hmm. so you can begin to transition to different parts yes. of the backbend journey mm -hmm. right whereas for me i could always use more space true always so i'm always so for me the more i could get uh poses with hips into extension so for us it would be like either our awakening yoga surya b working on that double bent leg lunge um extension or forearm hollow backs or chandrasana lunge like those would kind of be like really big 
uh, big poses for me mm-hmm. that I would I would be like, oh, that that would be my course mm-hmm. because no matter what, for me, stability and control is what I have. Mm-hmm. Right, it's that's, already your strength. That, that's that's that, yeah, that's that is my framework, mm-hmm. right? And so being able to uh, have more awareness around that, I'm like, okay, I know I have that, and then to de- continue to develop along the path, it's like, how can I create more opening because I need more opening in order to access that spinal mobility. What I love about this conversation and in particular is just that while we both have a embodied experience of this posture of taking this kind of class teaching this kind of class or making our way towards or asana, it's such a different journey and it shows that as a teacher where you are along the path of any concept what you have to offer is really valuable because mm-hmm. it's going to be a different experience for everyone exactly. so someone that if we were to both teach classes that had quote-unquote peak poses of urdhva danyarasana they're both going to look and feel very very differently energetically mm-hmm. academically physically all of it's going to be different because we have different experiences that we're coming from to share as opposed to if we were just okay we need to check off these boxes let's teach wheel it's more likely that we're just going to go down the list and teach the same thing so having that firsthand experience gives you a more unique experience for the students and I also think it connects you to them because here you are sharing your actual experience and it may not resonate for everyone right I might need I don't need the same preparation that you do but it means that what you're speaking from is your firsthand experience so you almost always have more to share when you can speak from experience than just trying to recite Exactly. And it also gives you opportunity to really cut your class up and make things more digestible. Mm-hmm. Like, could you imagine trying to jam in all the stuff you just said into an hour long class? No, but it, that's it, what happens when we get a pose guide yes. that says this pose requires X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Here are the preparatory poses yeah. for now this pose. I need pose. to do wrists, arms, shoulders, spine. This is the problem with pretending hips, like any class legs. is just yeah. a backbending class. Because yeah. what is this? This is an everything class. Yeah. It, it all is an everything it's all, Everything's in everything. We can't compartmentalize as much yeah, as we like to pretend that we can. the body moving is the body moving. Yes. It's the body moving. It's all, it's all connected. Yeah. So again, it gives you the chance to really look at things and say, okay, I can teach a backbending practice or a heart opening practice, depending on the way you want to speak on that, um, and focus on one or two specific things mm-hmm. And then allow students to have that experience with the pose because it's going to be inherently different. Like if you had a class where you mainly focused on shoulder opening and mm-hmm. shoulder flexibility, and you put had word of a Dhanurasana in there, versus a class where you focused on hip extension mm-hmm. and hip mobility, that wheel at the end is going to be a dramatically different pose. Mm-hmm for the students Absolutely. and so it gives you actually more to play with as opposed to oh I need to get all of this stuff in there and then by the end people are so taxed so taxed that they can't even really complete the posture yeah they've burnt out with him to get there and this is why I think it's so important to focus less on what have I mastered can I do this and instead more on how do I communicate it Mm-hmm. Right. And and how do I motivate people to want to show up to practice, to want to be in this experience for themselves and to inquire along the way? Right. Because if they're just following along as well, then they're not going to get as much out of it as if you can convince them to care about themselves. Right. Or to inquire and to self-study along the way. That's a big part of it. And for me, becoming an effective teacher has much more to do with communication and dedication and and I think charisma I don't want it to have like a negative connotation because sometimes I think people think it sounds like superficial but I think charisma is really important in the sense that not that like cheerleader charisma but charisma in the way that people are drawn to listening to you to trusting you to wanting to 
follow you along the path. I think it's how can your language articulate a level of inquiry in your students? Yeah, yeah, because it's not about like, oh, I have so much charisma and then it's the guru thing. Mm -hmm. It's just about how can you spark that joy and interest in your students Mm -hmm. so that they want to practice instead of just feeling like they should do these things. Like, oh, we got to get through this. Yeah. We got, we, we're hiking that pail today, guys. Yeah, and, and it's we, like the teacher's like, oh, we just got one more round. And yeah. it's like, well, no, how do we, we don't need that kind of language. Instead, how do we get students to inquire on their own? And I think that is a skill that is really important to cultivate as a teacher, more important than collecting more poses. And really one of the more interesting things that you'll see in almost every other discipline as well is coaching and mm-hmm. trainers, right? So like the best athletes in the world have coaches and trainers. Most of those coaches and trainers did not play at the highest level of sport themselves. No, that's such a good example because if you think about, I mean, it's LeBron James is not coached by someone who is equal to LeBron James. Yes, because there is Isn't like maybe three people <laughs> in the history of the world that are equal to, to LeBron, LeBron James, James in basketball. Right? right, but LeBron still has coaches yeah. and, or someone who has a shooting coach in the NBA. Yeah. It's a, a, An athletic trainer, just literally the coach of the team, right? Mm-hmm. The coach of the team maybe didn't ever even play in college. Yeah. Right? Maybe had, maybe had a limited high school experience. Like, knowledge of something doesn't always equate to physical performance of doing something. Mm-hmm. And I think that the more you can really tap into an awareness to what you're knowledgeable about, to what sparks your interest as a teacher, those are the types of things that you can be sharing in your classes. Well, and I think from the coach-trainer perspective, there is a different kind of view of the craft than from the practitioner or player perspective, right? It's this more holistic view, um, this ability to kind of see the bigger picture and how to navigate within that. And that's a skill in and of itself that's really different than the performance aspect of things. Completely, especially because this happens to all of us in life, how when you're in the thick of it, you can't see anything else. No, it's like tunnel vision. Exactly, and so when you get that outside perspective, all of a sudden it really changes your reality because you're like, oh, I literally had never thought about mm-hmm. that. Literally never. And that's happened to all of us, I guarantee. All of us. Many, many it's times. Things, I mean, a teacher might come over and point something out that all of a sudden it all clicks and you go, oh, well, of course. Or like, oh, I've been doing that? I had no idea. For how, how long? long? Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's just a different viewpoint and a different um, awareness to what's actually happening that it's not to take away from your intrinsic sense of self or your introspection to feel what you're going through, but there is something to be said for an outside party with a sort of more bird's eye view of what's going on, and that can go a long way to being a really effective teacher is being able to see the whole picture. So I think the moral of the story here is the best thing to do with teaching is when you can't do something is to make sure that you can embody it yourself and that you're not just throwing random shit out there just to throw random shit out there. Yeah, again, it's just it's not about mastery or performance and it's not about getting caught up. And I think social media makes this hard some days, all days, yeah. um, that we see people do things in a very visual and you know short form manner. And so it's easy to assume that they will know how to teach you to do those things and it's not to say they can or can't but that that's not the mechanism through which we should be judging or we should see the lens of teacher it's not through just what's the physical ability but there's such a more multifaceted nature to teaching around communication motivation and how you can articulate what it is that you're teaching 
and how you make people care about it. Yeah, because again, you guys, just coming back to our boy LeBron James, like if you ask LeBron James to teach you how to dunk, <laughs> LeBron James has been able to dunk probably since he was 12. Yeah. Okay? It's, it's just, he didn't need to learn how to dunk. It was just part of his process mm-hmm. of just literally oh, dunk. living as a human being. It was part of his human experience. Well, and maybe getting better at what he could already yeah. do, but it wasn't a brand new skill set. Exactly. Yeah. And so... Um, giving yourself the opportunity to really look at not only yourself as a student but if you are a teacher yourself as a teacher and finding ways to have that level of inquiry that level of self-realization to understand okay not just why am I doing something but how am Mm -hmm. I doing something how am I accomplishing this task why is it important that I teach this thing? Why do I want to teach something that I can't currently yeah, do? Why does in my it own matter body? to me? Why does it matter to me? And the more you can begin to answer those questions mm-hmm. for yourself and be really honest, um, you'll you'll get what you're looking for. Meaning, like, am I teaching this thing that I can't do to try and quote unquote keep up with the Joneses mm-hmm. at my studio? Yeah. Am I teaching this thing that I can't do so I look authoritative to my students? Yeah. Or am I teaching this thing that I can't do because it's part of the process of this practice and I'm sharing through my own experience? Yes. And I'm interested in it and I want to be a part of that. Yeah. Absolutely. And so again, beginning to answer those questions really allows you the opportunity to I think teach with integrity, not mm-hmm. just throw something out there just because. And I think that's that's what you really want to avoid, right? So, um, you know, can you talk about it if you haven't lived it? Can you teach it if you can't do it? It's it's really all about the intention, and um, you know, it's coming even coming full circle here. Like I I try to when I'm talking to other people about your birth story, um, I try to only say things that you have said to me. Mm. Because those that that is at least me telephoning through your experience. Yes, not projecting. Not projecting my experience onto your experience. Because again, I have my own experience with you giving birth. And well, you have your own firsthand experience yeah. that is different than my firsthand yeah. experience, even though they were along parallel roads. And we have a sweet video of her coming out, which is crazy. <laughs> which is another firsthand experience that I don't have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Anyways, you guys, uh, we will be blah, 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 blah. We will be back to our normal schedule, releasing podcasts every Monday and Thursday. Um, and additionally, on Mondays and Thursdays, starting next week, that would be, I think, July 27th or so, we are coming out with YouTube videos. 29th. 29th, excuse me, on Monday, mm-hmm. the 29th. YouTube will be back in action the this time. The mic is official. working. We got a mic. So classes will have nice audio. That'll be a nice experience. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to share classes again on YouTube. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so you can find us on there as well. And of course, you can find us everywhere um, that the internet allows us to be. Because, because apparently that's just part of what we do. Um, if you want to see pictures of Harvey June, of course, check out our Instagram. Yes, her name is Harvey June. Mm-hmm. As this is like a little Southern Belle. A little Southern Belle. A little monster. We know that Harvey is a boy's name, but not anymore. No, it's not. It's, not a, it's, it's her name. It's her name. Yeah. So... There we go. Um, Have an amazing rest of your week, and we will chat with you all on Monday. 